O Lord. The Gospel reading this morning is taken from the book of St. John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, he was one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. At this time I would be saying you may be seated, but you're probably already sitting at home. Uh, Carry on. Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. John records in chapter 21, 24 through 25, we hear these words, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. 
Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The Gospel of John, in it we know and we hear and we are told what God wanted us to know. Everything we need for salvation so that we would believe and live. In the name of Jesus. Preparing for this sermon proclamation this week, I looked and thought this thought, I have to admit to you right now, oh great, it's Sunday that we get to hear about Doubting Thomas. And that's how we label him, right? We, we know that uh, here's Thomas. He's the one that doubts. He's a big doubter. Now how's that for a nickname, though, for an apostle? And yet, what do we hear from Jesus himself? We hear that eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Now, wait a second. The doors were locked? What are the apostles doing inside? Jesus had just told them, I'm sending you out. And they're inside. Locked doors. They're scared. Kind of sounds like we are right now, doesn't it? Sheltered in place, scared, longing to hear peace be with you. And yet, there they were. They were huddled together, hidden and fearful. But we don't label those apostles. We label Thomas, because Thomas is the one who doubts. Now, sometimes our sins are open and obvious, and everyone, (laughs) everyone knows about them. And sometimes our sins, they become the label that sticks to us. And that stinks. Sometimes our sins are private things that They just don't get talked about because they maybe aren't as entertaining or juicy to talk about them. But that doesn't make them stink any less. It doesn't make them any less of a sin. And we can be tempted to start ranking folks, categorizing them by the obviousness of their sin and treating them with appropriate disdain. But that's not what Christ does. He shows up and he says, peace be with you. And he says it to all of them, to Thomas and all the rest. Whether the sin is open and scandalous or not, A soul knows it. And Jesus knows what you need. Jesus knows what you need. You need peace. You need 
forgiveness, all of you. But Jesus singles out Thomas, doesn't he? But only afterwards, after he says, peace be with you, he says to Thomas, well, actually, let's just, let me backtrack a little bit. Here's what he doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, hold everything. We got to fix bad Thomas before I can begin to lower myself and hang out with you uh, goombas, kind of slumming it. I got to fix this guy before he can be with the great deity that I am, fully man, fully God. Jesus doesn't say that. No, he gives him an all-in-the-room peace. Peace be with you. And knowing the struggles that Thomas faces, Jesus doesn't cut him down. He does not simply rip him. He emphasizes to Thomas that he is, in fact, forgiven. Jesus wants us to do one thing with sin. In fact, Jesus only wants to do one thing with our sin, and that is he wants to forgive it. Even the secret sins. Even the sins that everyone knows about. He says to you, and we say to each other, peace be with you. Now I want to repeat the verse, unless I see, I will not believe. That was notorious, and that's why we call him doubting. Doubting Thomas, John 20, verse 25. Yet, This is a stance that's more popular now than ever, isn't it? Seeing is believing. Have you heard that? Have you said that? Seeing is believing has taken the place of traditional faith that is drawn to the love of those things which are not seen. Yet, again, Jesus' reply to Thomas was, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's John 20, 29. Among the reasons why Christ would say such a thing is the fact that God, God values faith. That's belief. He, believe, he, he values it so highly that he is unwilling to reveal himself in a way that would render faith unnecessary. He wouldn't be much of a God if we knew everything about him, would he? If there was no mystery? Now, with regard to human beings, our trust in his word is as important to God as our free will when he first created us. He gave us free will. He gave Adam and Eve free will. This is what theologians call Deus absconditus. Deus absconditus, which means the hidden God. It refers to the Christian idea of a fundamental unknowability of the essence of God. The name comes from the Bible, specifically from the book of Isaiah, where he writes in Isaiah 45, 15, Indeed, indeed, you are a hidden God, you, the God of Israel, the Savior. 
And Luther said it this way. He said, God chooses to hide himself from our physical senses so that faith in him can be necessary. Now, God does this in many ways. The hidden God. God has so ordered the universe that the miracle of his existence is hidden beneath a veil of material causation. So much so, listen to this, so much so that many a scientist fails to see his divine hand at work in it. He has so ordered the human body so that divinely revealed soul and spirit in us is hidden. For example, a soul does not need an optic nerve to see. We look to Luke 16, verse 23. That is where we hear about Lazarus and the wealthy man is in hell looking up at Lazarus and asks for Lazarus to dip his finger in water and just dribble a little to his lips. The wealthy man is dead. He's in hell, but he can see Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham. Blind people during what they call NDEs, near-death experiences. Blind people report enjoying 20-20 vision while their soul was separated from their defective body. Now, it makes sense that the soul is normally required to make use of faulty biological mechanisms, mainly the brain, effectively hiding the miracle of God in what appears to be material functionality. We know this, that the single most complex entity in the known universe is the human being, and the human brain in particular. Yet however baffling and amazing the human being is, unbelievers from Charles Darwin to Richard Dawkins still attempt to explain us in purely materialistic terms. The most momentous example of God hiding his glory from our senses is the wonder of his almighty eternal son in the flesh. The mystery of God coming down, condescending, taking on flesh and tabernacling with us. John Wesley famously described the incarnation with the words, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. And yet, having people see the Son of the living God looking like an ordinary Jewish guy is not exceptional for God. That's the way he does things. He saved the world with a baby. Rather, it is his norm. Above all, the strategy was necessary or else Christ would not have been sacrificed for our redemption. He needed to look like a regular guy. He needed to be born in a manger. He needed to have a look that was not remarkable. None of the rulers of this age understand this either, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord 
of glory. That's 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8. And so it goes. God's word. God's word and sacraments, like our crucified and risen Savior, are so easily despised and scorned, yet so full of miraculous power to save those who believe. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Luther once said of holy baptism, All that the mortal eye beholds is water as we pour it. Before the eye of faith unfolds the power of Jesus' merit. The world sees bread and wine and water. But through faith that God has given us through his Holy Spirit, we see salvation, forgiveness of sins. God takes the regular, normal, run-of-the-mill and does miraculous things with it. Hear this prayer. Father in heaven, in many ways you veil much from human eyes that would render faith unnecessary. And we thank you that faith can include the precious and comforting gifts of assurance and conviction about the reality of things not seen through the power of your Holy Spirit and working through your word and sacraments. Amen. So the last bit on Thomas, building up a case of not seeing not believing until he sees. We're like him, and I thank God for giving us him. We read that, Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it to my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. John 20, verse 27. Did you know that... uh, The church celebrates Thomas every December 21st of every year. St. Thomas Day. Why would St. Thomas be right before Christmas? He's known for his post-Easter doubts that we read today. The answer is, in Thomas' confession, I won't believe unless I see. The world doesn't believe in a God it cannot see. And you don't believe in a God that you cannot see. And that's why God comes to us looking like us. God comes to us like a mother with a child, a, a baby, a teen, a man. The great thing about God is not that he's all-powerful and invisible, but that he comes as a man to be seen and to be killed. The truth is that Thomas stands in for us the one who actually says he doubts. Thomas says what we may be thinking but afraid to say. And that is why we celebrate St. Thomas because he, along with 
the rest of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus were eyewitnesses to the God who can be seen and can be touched. The story of Thomas is comforting because it reminds us that we also doubt and that the Lord becomes our doubts by being the kind of God he is, the one who comes to us to be seen, to be heard, and to be touched. So Christmas is the answer to a world that doesn't think God is real or that he exists, but he does. He's right here in the flesh, in our gospel today, and he says, peace be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. And Thomas believes because he can stick his fingers in the nail holes in Jesus' hand. And you believe. You believe by the preaching of the gospel. But the gospel itself is just that eyewitness testimony that Jesus actually lived and died and rose again. And that matters for you because it is your salvation. It is your forgiveness. And at the font, at the baptismal font, you have a God who reaches down to take hold of you. And in the preaching and the absolution and the word, you have a Lord who speaks to you and isn't silent and hidden somewhere. In the supper, you have a Lord who lets you eat and drink his true body and his true blood. No mistaking who that is. It's the Lord, God and man. The Lord who comes to doubting sinners like you and Thomas and saves them. Of all the little G gods and the religions that are out there, it is only Jesus who is a God for doubters and sinners. It is only Jesus who comes to be what we are so that we may know him and believe in him and to be saved by him so that you would believe and have life. In the name of Jesus, amen.